Welcome to the Commission Podcast. We're so excited to start sharing with you all the excellent teaching from this year's Revive, our annual Bible conference. By God's grace, it was our first time back in three years. Our theme this year was Go to the Great City on the book of Jonah and how that relates to our call to reach the lost of London for Christ. This first talk is from Richard Koken, Mission Director at Commission, on chapter one and the sovereignty of God and how God uses reluctant evangelists to accomplish his purpose. We hope you enjoy. Hi, um, I'm Saffron from Cornerstone Church uh, and we're gonna have our reading now. (laughs) Uh, And the reading is found in the book of Jonah, chapter one, and we'll be reading from verse one to 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Morning, everybody. Do keep that page in the Bible open. 
Now let's bow our heads and pray. Almighty God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit continues to speak to us today through your word, the Bible. And so we pray, please speak to each and every one of us now, we pray. Whether we're new to these things and find it all very strange or have read this passage many times, Lord, help us to concentrate and to hear what your voice is saying here in the text. And please, may we be willing to change as a result. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, most of us are reluctant evangelists. The recent uh, Talking Jesus report by the Evangelical Alliance reckons 60%, sorry, 6% of the UK are practicing Christians, but only half of us have had have any meaningful friendships with unbelievers, and only a quarter of us have ever shared the gospel with them. We're clearly reluctant evangelists. We're all tempted to live like chameleons, those extraordinary lizards which adapt their appearance to match their surroundings to stay camouflaged and hidden from predators. We're reluctant to live distinctly like Jesus, reluctant to share the good news of Jesus, reluctant to plant revitalized churches in London to reach people for Jesus. Well, this dramatic little book of Jonah is God's message for reluctant evangelists like us. Because Jonah isn't about Jonah and the whale, it's about God and a reluctant evangelist. His name Jonah is significant. In Hebrew, it means dove, an Old Testament picture for Israel. In Psalm 68, to describe Israel as vulnerable, but in Hosea 7, to describe Israel as silly and senseless. For Jonah's reluctance to proclaim God's word to Nineveh reflects Israel's reluctance to be God's light to the nations. And Jonah's rebellion will provoke the Lord's humiliating discipline in a series of farcical events that do make him look a bit of a clown. I mean, just think of it, swallowed by a fish, vomited onto a beach, sulking on a hill about a plant. Jonah is a warning to reluctant evangelists of the Lord's discipline, but it is also profoundly encouraging. For if God can use Jonah, he can use you and me too. The Apostle Paul reminds us that everything written in the Old Testament was written for our encouragement, Romans 15, and to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3. Unlike other minor prophets proclaiming the Lord as judge, the book of Jonah proclaims him as merciful, calling his people then and now and right here today to share his cross-cultural compassion. This enthralling account of the Lord training his reluctant prophet to preach his word to the godless city of Nineveh will train us to proclaim his gospel to our godless city of London. As you'll see from the notes, Jonah is a literary masterpiece. Secular scholars get a bit seasick studying it. They find the miracle of the big fish hard to swallow. <laughs> but the big fish is a red herring. <laughs> this beautiful book of just 48 verses has a beautifully crafted structure to emphasize its primary themes. Jonah has a central declaration. In chapter 2, verse 9, the prophet declares 
Salvation comes from the Lord. Shown in the salvation of pagan sailors from a storm, of a disobedient prophet from drowning, and the city of Nineveh from destruction. Jonah reminds us that God is a saviour who wants everyone in London to be saved. Jonah has two parallel halves, chapters 1 and 2, and chapters 3 and 4. Each is arranged in three parallel sections. First comes Jonah's response to God's command to preach his word, in 1, 1 to 3, and in 3, 1 to 3. Next comes Jonah's interaction with Gentile unbelievers, whose leader behaves better than he does. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 7, it's the captain. In chapter 3, verse 4 to 7, it's the king of Nineveh. And then third comes Jonah's experience of God's grace. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, in a fish. And in chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, in a plant. The first half of the book recounts the salvation of Jonah. And its central theological statement in chapter 1, verse 9, proclaims God as creator. Jonah says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The second half recounts the salvation of Nineveh. Its central theological statement comes in 4.2, where Jonah proclaims God a savior. Jonah says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see, Jonah, and we need to learn that the creator of the whole world is also the saviour for the whole world. It's clear God gives Jonah this dramatic personal experience of God's mercy in chapters 1 to 2 to motivate him to give the people of Nineveh their experience of God's mercy in chapters 3 to 4. Surely just as our personal experience of mercy in Christ should motivate us to proclaim his mercy to others. That's what we're here for. We're not saved to live on the beach at the end of chapter 2 or to stay at Revive enjoying ourselves, but to live the second half of our story on mission. For after all, God has delayed the end of the world and placed us wherever we live for the same purpose that Christ came into the world which is to seek and to save the lost. That is what we're here for. And Jonah has four chapters, each displaying different aspects of God's beautiful character and stunning attributes. In chapter 1, his holiness combines with his sovereignty. In chapter 2, his grace combines with his omnipresence. In chapter 3, his wrath combines with his mercy. And in chapter 4, his compassion combines with his providence. In admiring these magnificent qualities, the more we am amazed we are by God, the more passionate we'll be to tell others about him. A little while ago, my, my wife and I went to hear Coldplay at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. And we couldn't stop talking about Coldplay for weeks afterwards. Isn't Chris Martin marvellous, we were saying all the time. The more amazed we are by God, we'll find it easier to talk about him. In his important book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper observes, the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. But where passion for God is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. Surely the main reason we struggle to speak about God is probably not a lack of strategy, but a lack of theology, a lack of excitement about God. 
So as Jonah reveals the astonishing character and attributes of God, the Holy Spirit is inflaming within our hearts a desire to speak to others about him. And Jonah has a challenging conclusion. In the Lord's final question, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? These words will call us to share God's concern for London. He really cares about London, you know. By joining his mission to our city. We need to learn to love London like God does. Not just concerned to transform our city through justice initiatives and the creative arts, but to save the people of our city through the gospel. And Jonah has a glorious fulfillment. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, Matthew 12. Jesus is the sign of Jonah. He is the resurrected preacher. For the sign of Jonah is not the fish which the Ninevites never saw, but the preacher raised by God. And so Jesus, speaking his word through us, is the risen evangelist that our city needs. Where Jonah was rebellious and racist, reluctant to go to Nineveh, and reluctant to see sinners find God's mercy, Jesus came willingly from heaven to preach the gospel and to die on a cross to bring us to God's mercy. The reluctant evangelist Jonah points us forward to the loving evangelist Jesus, full of gut-wrenching compassion for sinners like us. And Jonah has a lasting imperative. When the Lord twice commands Jonah in 1-2 and in 3-1, go to the great city of Jonah, of Nineveh, sorry, the Holy Spirit is surely reminding us of Jesus' command in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. We are called commission after his great commission. So as we recover from the pandemic and look to reboot our shared commitment to plant and revitalize churches together to reach London for Christ, the Lord is calling us again through Jonah. Go! Go to the great city of London. Jonah's memoirs are the gripping account of the Lord using a shamefully reluctant messenger to turn a whole city of wicked pagans to himself. And if he used Jonah, he really can use us. For the primary purpose of our lives and of our churches and of our network is God's primary purpose in the world, which is to glorify God and to grow his kingdom by proclaiming his gospel. That's why when God took flesh in Jesus, he came as an evangelist, as a church planter, as a cross-cultural missionary. That's who he was. He began his earthly ministry calling his disciples to learn to fish for people. And he ended his earthly ministry commanding us to make disciples of all nations. God's word in Jonah calls us to be a lot less like Jonah and a lot more like Jesus. So let's dive into chapter 1, which focuses on God's sovereignty over all nations, being expressed in mission. His rule over the world is expressed in mission. There are three acts to the drama. Here we go. Act 1, the command. The Lord is sovereign everywhere. 
This is verses 1 and 2. And if you've got your Bible or open the text up, let's look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. This name, Lord, in capital letters, as you know, means I am who I am. The name that God gave Moses. It asserts his absolute power and freedom to be and to do as he chooses, even to redeem sinners. This phrase, the word of the Lord came, is repeated a hundred times in the Old Testament, for God exercises his sovereign rule in the world through his word. The reason the Lord was offended by faraway Nineveh is because he is sovereign over everyone, everywhere. And that is why evangelism is not arrogant, not colonial, it's not imperialistic if we're proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is Lord because he is Lord over everyone, everywhere. The same thing happens in Jesus' great commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Just like the Lord in Jonah, Jesus exercises his sovereign power, not by invading and conquering and destroying nations, but by reaching out to save them. And the text emphasizes God's sovereignty throughout the chapter. Notice first the Lord is sovereign over the prophet Jonah. We know from 2 Kings 14 that Jonah, son of Amittai, was a late 8th century BC prophet from Gath Hefer near Nazareth. Despite the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel at that time, under Jeroboam II, the Lord kept a great promise he'd made through Elisha and announced through Jonah his blessing of Israel by enabling Jeroboam to extend Israel's borders in the north to their former glory. And so Jonah was the prophet associated with national glory. Perhaps not surprisingly, when the Lord commands Jonah to go and be a blessing to Gentiles, he reveals himself to be spitefully racist. He lacks compassion for those wicked unbelievers. As God's prophet, Jonah should have obeyed his sovereign Lord. And sadly, we also, who since the day of Pentecost have been blessed with God's spirit to be God's prophets, declaring his wonders in Jesus from the Bible, are often more disobedient like Jonah than obedient like Jesus. But notice second that the Lord is sovereign over the city of Nineveh. By ancient standards, Nineveh was a major city, about 120,000 people, second city of the Assyrian Empire, and soon to be its capital. The Lord describes Nineveh here with two words, great and wicked. Great, not just because it was important politically and commercially, 3-1, but because God knew it was full of spiritually confused people. Chapter 4, verse 11. And that's why London matters. Not just because London is a leading global city with commercial cultural power, but because it's home to eight and a half million spiritually confused people living all around us who claim no personal faith in Christ and really are rushing like lemmings over the cliff into an eternity without God in torments. We're living in a catastrophe. It's called London.
It's right to seek the welfare of our city in every way, but especially with the gospel that grants eternal welfare. And God says Nineveh was wicked. Sending Jonah there was a bit like sending us to Kandahar in the heart of Taliban territory in Afghanistan to evangelize Muslims or to the prosperous heart of Chelsea to evangelize the wealthy. Stone carvings in the British Museum depict the savage ferocity of the Assyrians. Indeed, in just a few years, after the repentance described in chapter 3, in 722 BC, the Ninevites will revert to type and will invade and brutally crush the northern tribes of Israel. And the prophet Nahum will condemn the cruelty, the witchcraft, the commercial exploitation, the depravity of Nineveh, describing it as the city of blood. God says, verse 2, its wickedness has come up before me. Now, you know, it's often said, isn't it, that what we do in our own homes is our own business. But the wickedness of the Ninevites and the sin of Londoners today is offensive to God because we all live in his home. We sin in front of his face. And he is sovereign over everyone everywhere. And he is offended by the wickedness of the world. And yet, isn't this wonderful? Instead of launching an airstrike, God launches an evangelist. As Peter puts it, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, 1 Peter 3. So while the book begins with God's word of condemnation, it'll end with words of compassion. As we shall see, Jonah the prophet wants the Lord to judge and destroy Nineveh. He has no intention of warning, let alone forgiving them. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah admits that's why he fled. He said, Oh Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. It's just typical of you, Lord, that you would have mercy on them. And it is typical of him. Jonah was not so much terrified of going to Nineveh as horrified that the Lord wants to show mercy to such a wicked people. Mercy seemed immoral to Jonah the Pharisee. But we will discover that the Lord who is sovereign over everyone everywhere is not only offended by sin, but he's also concerned for the salvation of sinners. He cares about everyone. This mission to Nineveh will ensure that amongst the significant cities of the Bible, if Jerusalem is God's city of righteousness, embodying our hope of heaven, if Babylon is the city of pride, embodying our world opposed to God, if Sodom and Gomorrah are the cities of immorality, embodying the severity of God's wrath, Nineveh will be the city of mercy. Of course, London, in one sense, is a mix of all those cities. But Nineveh reminds us that our Lord wants us not only to warn the great and wicked city of London of his judgment to come, but also to proclaim, tell people about his mercy, because they don't know about it. The Lord is sovereign over London, or as Jesus put it, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, including London. Struck me that um, we don't want to arrive in heaven, do we, with kind of not a mark on us. It's a bit like the um, clean-shirted rugby winger 
I mean, about a century ago, I, I used to play rugby a long time ago, and I played on the wing. And I don't know whether you've ever, whether or not you know anything about rugby, you can imagine the changing room afterwards, okay? And it's quite common in a rugby changing room that people look quite different at the end of the match. You see, there are the Fords who are the big thugs, okay? And at the end of the match, you know, they're absolutely covered in mud and blood, and there's bandages sort of hanging off their heads, and their ears are hanging off, and they've lost a finger, and, you know, everything's torn and ripped and absolutely covered in blood and mud. And, you know, they've been through a war zone. I mean, look at them. And then there's the winger. You know, completely clean, still ironed, got the creases in the shirt, you know, not a mark on the shirt at all, you know, complete nothing. And the forwards look across at the wing and think, were you even in that match? We kind of don't want to arrive in heaven, do we? And there are the northern Nigerians. I spent some years growing up there, you know, from Zaria. And there they are, they're covered in blood and mud and bandages. And there are the North Koreans. They were steamrolled. And there are the Eritreans, boiled in shipping containers in the desert. And there are the Indians. Yeah, they've, they've got the marks on them. And all around us there are the groups of people covered in mud and blood with stories to tell of how God used them in their time, in their cities. And there's a little group over there. And there's, who's that lot? Oh, that's the Londoners. <laughs> Not a mark on them. I don't want to get to heaven with nothing to say. I don't want to get to heaven and have no story of anybody slamming a door in my face or spitting at me or telling me something horrible. I don't want to get to heaven with not a mark on me like a clean-shirted winger. Do you? Act 2, verses 3 to 10, the storm, the Lord is sovereign over nature. Twice in verse 3 and verse 10, to begin and end this section, we're told that Jonah rose up to run away from the Lord. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he's trying, he's trying to hide from God. Amazingly, God didn't strike him down or even just replace him. Many have observed that like Jesus' parable about two sons, Jonah behaves like the selfishly rebellious prodigal son who flees from his father in the first half of Jonah, and then like the bitterly self-righteous son who resents his father in the second part of Jonah. Here in the first half, he's like the prodigal son. When Jonah is told to head east across the desert to Nineveh, he heads west across the sea to Tarshish, to the end of the known world. Now, knowing that the Lord is, verse 9, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, that's pretty stupid, actually. Surely Jonah knew Psalm 139, proclaiming God's omnipresence, his presence everywhere. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? In other words, you can run, but you can't hide from God. Any, I wonder if there's anyone here who in their hearts is trying to hide this weekend, trying to run from God. You'll never get away from God. He cares too much about you to do that. Don't run from him. Run to him. Even this weekend, resolve that instead of running away, you're going to turn around and run back to him and pour out everything to him. 
Don't run from him, run to him before you face his loving discipline like Jonah does. Verse 4, the Lord who controls natural forces hurled a violent storm upon the ship to humble Jonah and to make him taste his grace. Verse 5, the pagan sailors are afraid and they pray urgently to their powerless gods while the prophet of God is asleep. You might say, as Muslims in London pray five times a day and the church prayer meetings are half empty. In verse 6, the sovereign Lord uses the pagan captain to rouse Jonah to prayer, echoing God's earlier command, saying, Arise. The captain's being more righteous than Jonah. And actually, it's true, isn't it? Often in public life, unbelievers are, are waiting for Christians to do something or say something and shocked to find us sleeping. It's probably true, isn't it, during the pandemic, when the nation was scared witless. Journalists were vainly asking church leaders to say something about the hope that we have in the gospel. The captain humbly asks in verse 6, maybe he will take notice of us and we'll not perish. A note of humility that will recur in Nineveh. Not everyone around us hates to hear about God. Many are dying for help. By contrast with this guilty prophet, the Gospels recall Jesus sleeping in a boat in a terrible storm when his disciples called on him for help and Jesus rose up to calm the winds and the waves with a word of power. And this massive storm, do you remember it? Mark 4, you know, huge storm driving, boat sinking, everybody's terrified. Jesus just speaks a word of command. It goes flat as a pancake, still like a pond. It is a reminder, isn't it, for some of us, in the midst of various storms, I've been speaking to people already, who are right in the midst of storm of bereavement and cancer and loss and disappointment and rejection. And seek the Lord Jesus in prayer this weekend. In verse 7, when the sailors superstitiously cast lots, the Lord sovereignly directs the outcome to fall on Jonah. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 16, the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. There's absolutely nothing random about our lives under the Lord who is sovereign. Do you know that? We don't know what our lives are about. We can't explain everything. But nothing is random under the sovereign Lord. When the desperate sailors interrogate him in verse 8, Jonah finally testifies. Verse 9, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This horrifies the sailors more than Jonah. They ask, what have you done? In other words, what kind of idiot are you to run away from that Lord? And we do wonder, don't we, why does God still bother with Jonah? Why not get a better prophet? Indeed, why bother with us? Why not just send down an army of angels and, or drop some Bibles from the sky, surely? Well, first, because he wants us to learn to be evangelistic like Jesus. It's part of what he wants for us in our lives to become more like Jesus. And we've got to find a way however bumbling we are of talking to other people about our Savior to be more like Jesus. And second, because the truth is we can translate God's Word into the language of our friends and our community in the way that nobody else can. We can be better evangelists for our friends and community than Billy Graham because we know them and they know us. If we'll just say something 
I remember going to a restaurant in London with my wife, Sean, for, for a birthday meal. And we were uh, sitting there. It was quite a nice restaurant. And next to us, uh, there, were, there were two sort of posh couples chatting to each other. And they were kind of like trading stories of places they'd been in the world. You know, it was one of those kind of, you know, we've been here. and oh, we, well, we went there. Yeah, of course, we were there. And it was kind of, you know, very uh, exciting. So and then I, one of the women in the, in the group just dropped a bombshell. She said, um, I, I could overhear. I wasn't supposed to, but I could. And... and, <laughs> and uh, she said, uh, I've started going to church. <laughs> uh, I'm not, oh, my goodness, you thought that the world had ended. I mean, was, you what? I started going to church, she said. Actually, it's changed my life. And these friends said, oh, how? What's happened? And then she started talking about what had happened in her life. And I thought, isn't that brilliant? What a brilliant way to talk about Jesus. I, I don't know about you, isn't it true? People don't like being preached at. But everyone has the right to share their story. Now you have the right to share your story. And you're allowed to say to your friends, to your colleagues, to the people in the office, yeah, I, I, I go to church actually. It changed my life. Oh, what do you mean? And off you can go. Talk about Jesus. So the Lord persists with Jonah as he persists with us. But he does hurl this storm of discipline because he loves his children too much to ignore when we rebel. Proverbs 3 says the Lord disciplines those he loves. And Hebrews comments, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Hebrews 12, 7. But the honest truth is, I have to say this to you. If we keep ignoring God's great commission... If we just give up evangelism and give up trying to plant and revitalize churches in order to reach people, we really can expect our loving Heavenly Father to bring us some loving discipline. But don't you love how the sovereign Lord uses Jonah's simple testimony to save these pagan sailors. While Jonah is actively trying to escape from evangelism, the Lord sovereignly uses him to accomplish it. Although, of course, he's actually unaware of it because he's thrown overboard. You see, God's mission to all nations is like a runaway train. Rather than trying to get off it, which you could cause some damage, we're better off joining in and enjoying the ride. It's worth us practicing our gospel testimony, ready for the opportunities that he sends. So instead of, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, you say, I'm a Christian, and I worship Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus, the crucified Galilean, Christ, the long-promised Savior King, the Lord, the risen and ruling divine King of all. You never know how our evangelistic Lord can use evangelistic conversations, even conversations under pressure, the most unlikely of places. I've mentioned before a chance conversation I had with a man called Julian when I was working as a lawyer. Here's one of the great benefits, by the way. I should have said this. Like, one of the great benefits of working in an office is that usually surrounded by non-Christians. It's fantastic. You know, opportunities over you know, every conversation. Anyway, this chap, uh, Julian, came in, and it was Ash Wednesday, and uh, he was a Roman Catholic, and he had some ash on his forehead. And so I did know, well, I, we were kind of friends, but, and, um, but cheekily I said to him, oh, there's a, there's a dirty mark on your forehead. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's Ash Wednesday. I'm a Catholic. So um, this, is, this is me, my character. It's not yours. I, I said, um, okay, so you know lots about guilt and not much about forgiveness then. 
And he said, what? I said, sorry, I thought that was what being Roman Catholic meant. You know, lots about guilt, but not much about forgiveness. And um, in God's sovereignty, we, we had lunch, and uh, uh, he a few lunches, uh, I paid. And um, he, he, he came along to church, and by God's grace, he was converted. And I, and I lost track of him until just a few years ago. I got a random email, and it turned out that he has gone to Malawi, rural Malawi. And we got in touch, and we had a, a Zoom call uh, two years ago. And uh, wonderfully, he's planting churches and evangelizing the poor of rural Malawi. He baptized three new believers every year. Isn't that wonderful? From a chance conversation. Yeah, praise God for that. Chance conversation, grubby mark on his forehead. And we laughed about it on Zoom, of what God has done through that conversation. Our Lord is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over chance conversations. Take the opportunities when they come up. Tell your story. Yeah, I worship Jesus. You see, God can arrange evangelistic. He can make evangelistic conversations fruitful in boats on the Mediterranean Sea and in offices in London because he's sovereign. He can use us. Act 3, the sailors. The Lord is sovereign over salvation. This is verses 11 to 16. This text clearly points us to the cross of Christ. In verse 12, like Jesus, Jonah accepts the blame and volunteers to die. In verse 13, the sailors did their best to save themselves. You can imagine them, you know, rowing frantically, trying to, you know, keep the ship together, but they just can't save themselves. Eventually, in verse 14, they cry for mercy in terms that are pointedly absent from the lips of the Jewish leaders who later killed Jesus. Oh Lord, please don't let us die for taking this man's life. Don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. I'm shouting, by the way, because they must have been shouting in the middle of a storm. These sailors recognize in this sacrifice the Lord's sovereign will. And so in verse 15, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. They couldn't know that God would save Jonah. And Jonah didn't know that God would save them. But that's what's so wonderful about the Lord. We don't know what's happening from chance conversations on a train in an office and so on. We're just part of a chain through which God is saving his people everywhere. But they realized that his death had satisfied the Lord and they were brought to simple Old Testament faith. Verse 16. They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, as Jonah himself will do in chapter 2, verse 9. We can fret about the shallowness of their understanding, but their response is the language of genuine Israelite worship. For Jesus taught that repentant faith in Christ, even as fragile and as new as the tiny mustard seed, is saving faith. For we're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're saved by the power of the Lord. You see, God saved those sailors through the substitutionary, sacrificial satisfaction of his own wrath by the death of his prophet, or rather the sacrifice of his prophet. Just as he can save us and anyone in London through Christ's death on the cross, as our substitutionary, that is in our place, sacrificial at immense cost to himself, satisfaction of his own wrath, that is making up for our sins, through his ultimate prophet Jesus on the cross. 
This remarkable salvation has two necessary implications, I think, for us. First is this. This does have much to teach us about how to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. You've probably noticed in the culture at the moment there's lots of angry and self-righteous condemnation and demand for justice in the world with people accusing and cancelling other people and refusing to be reconciled until the offending person has repented of this to their satisfaction for what they've done, which means no reconciliation. Rarely possible. But if God had waited until the sailor's repentance or our repentance was perfect, and until we provide satisfaction for our sins, we would still be under his condemnation. Praise God that like his mercy towards these sailors who knew so little of what they'd done wrong. The Lord forgives us, even though our repentance is shallow, half-hearted. We cannot provide any satisfaction for our sins. And so he's provided it himself in Christ in order to show us mercy. So it seems to me, while we seek justice for others, and it's good to work for justice for others, insofar as it's up to us, let us turn the other cheek, as Jesus said, to forgive as we have been forgiven. When those who've hurt us are trying to repent, shallow though it may be, without expecting full satisfaction. For Jesus said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This passage does teach us how to forgive when someone is trying to show their repentance even though it's baby repentance. Thank the Lord that God forgives us, even though we hardly know the depth of our sin. But above all, Jonah chapter 1 proclaims the marvelous news that the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, who created the sea and the land, can graciously exercise his sovereign rule in the world in saving sinners of all nations through the clumsy testimony of a reluctant evangelist like Jonah and like you and me. Because Jesus has died to satisfy his wrath for their sins. And so, like Jonah, we must go. We must go to the great city of London. We must go back from Revive to pray for opportunities, to look for opportunities to tell our family and friends, neighbours and community about the Lord that we worship. To be part of a church plant or revitalization if we can. For the Lord is the sovereign evangelist. If he can use Jonah, honestly, he can use me and you. The risen Jesus, now sovereign over the world, sovereign over London, and sovereign over our lives, we sing our hearts out, Jesus is Lord. Well, let's live like it. For he has commanded us in his great commission, which gives us our name. Go. Go. Go to the great city of London. Make disciples of all nations for me there, from amongst your friends and your families. And what a joy when someone that we know turns to the Lord. There is no greater joy in all the world than when a friend or neighbor or colleague comes to Christ. And if God used Jonah, he can use us. Go to the great city of London and make disciples of all nations for him. Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, we hear your command to go. Please have mercy upon us.
please forgive us where we have failed to take the opportunities that you've given us, where we have disobeyed and run away. And Lord, now by the power of your spirit through your word, please, would you stir within us a confidence in you that you are sovereign. And as we've thought about those we could speak to, friends, neighbors, colleagues, please would you give us opportunities. Give us conversations where we can say something of how we worship you. Because you are the risen Lord and you can use us to bring people to eternal salvation. Please may this conference not just be another time away singing and enjoying ourselves. Please may we resolve even now that we will go back willing to obey you, to look for our opportunity to make disciples of all nations. We ask it in your name and in your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode. Stay tuned as we continue to share talks from our time away together as a network. We'll also hear seminar talks on adoption, dating, identity, generosity, and remaining in the city for the gospel. See you next time.